The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Cinematography Podcast. We're back. We're back so quickly because mostly because Ilya and I are recording the host wraps for 23 and 24 here in a row right now. That's right. So uh, a little, our, little inside baseball. For yeah. You. Our topical banter uh, this time is not going to be too different from our last topical banter because not too much has happened in the time between these two. Uh... Literally nothing. I hit stop and, I, and we both said, hey, that was a good take. And then I hit record. So. Anyway, before we get before we go any further down this rabbit hole, Ilya, who is our guest today? Robert McLaughlin. I mean, he had a fantastic war story. He's got a fantastic interview. In fact, he is the first interview that I have done now for the podcast. So I am stepping into uh, into to your boots a little bit here. Although, uh, here's the secret: this was actually recorded last February or something like that. So uh, it's been in the can for a while. Really glad it's finally coming out. And I think I did an okay job. I'm not going to toot my horn too much. It was nerve wracking. I got to do a set visit. I got to go. You're awesome, man. Stop, stop being down on yourself. You know, all this, you know, way more about this stuff than I do. And it's fine. Uh, Anyway, uh, uh, Robert's amazing. He's his his work speaks for itself. I mean, but he's been doing this for a very long time. uh, And most recently, you've probably saw Ray Donovan or Westworld or God, uh, I was was a late acolyte to Westworld. Actually, it was the first thing that we watched at home after the baby was born. Mm. And uh, we just kind of sat on the couch watching uh, Westworld and, uh, you know, when he slept. And uh, that show is unbelievably great looking. Also, he did some work for Game of Thrones. You know, never heard of it. Never heard of it. So so anyway, and and he talks about all this stuff and and a lot more. So uh, without further ado, here he is, Robert McLaughlin. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm sitting down with Robert McLaughlin. This is a really cool location that that you're at today. Where where exactly are we? Uh, we're supposed to be in a uh, in the uh, English faculty at Princeton. Ah, okay. But we are in fact in a in a heritage house that was donated to the Catholic Church, and the grounds are a and all these new beautiful new buildings around here. Are, it's basically an old folks' home for priests. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it, it certainly is lovely, and I think you're going to do a great job of faking it as Princeton because it has that that old wood and old world uh, charm going on inside of here. You are a cinematographer, and you've been working in motion picture and television for a, a long time now. And uh, I guess the number one thing that a lot of our listeners want to know is, how did you get the bug? How did you get uh, how did you get interested in this uh, way back when? Well, I, you know, my, my dad was a, a commercial illustrator and a little bit of a bohemian, and um, there were always, he had a lot of hobbies, photography and Super 8, well, actually, and originally, original 8 filmmaking being two of them. Um, he drew pictures, he liked movies, he liked photography, there was always a dark room in the house, and I was really drawn to it, and I really enjoyed photography um, to the point where even in, in high school, I was taking some advanced night school courses in, in fine art, black and white photography at the local university. Um, so I was really into all that. And of course, later in high school, you're, you're you know, even in the middle of high school, um, every kid, like every kid, um, you know, everybody's, uh, there's starting to be some pressure on, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And, and um, the one thing my dad had always drilled into my brother and I was that it didn't matter what you did when you grew up, as long as you loved it. 
And so I, the next logical thing to ask myself was, well, what do I love doing and how can I possibly make a living doing it? And what I loved doing was photography and I loved going to movies. And, um, you know, I'd seen a few documentaries about the making of movies and that kind of thing. And it looked indescribably cool. I think one of the, one of the ones that affected me a lot as a kid was one that Alan Wicker, the BBC journalist did on the making of Grand Prix, which just, just looked like the absolute coolest process in the world and of course then i got to go see the movie on widescreen it was a roadshow thing and it was you know it was it was it was incredibly cool and exciting and and so the 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 goal was to figure out a way to become a cinematographer and make movies um but i was growing up in a in a middle-class suburb in in north vancouver in canada where there was no film industry and there was no no traditional filmmaking or anything and um you know the, the the you know then the tough part became how do you how do you do that and what I did was um, I had trouble getting people to there, there there was no industry to get a job as an assistant or to be trained in what have you I went to a couple of the mediocre local film schools and got a little bit of a taste of it but really um, you know they were in, our my instructors were people who had worked for the National Film Board of Canada and made nature documentaries and stuff so that wasn't really the best uh, technical grounding for learning how to even light a, a simple close-up. Well, yeah, you, I mean, I mean, I could be reading something into this here, too, because, uh, you know, I just uh, gave you a little preview of my, my what's going to become my stock question is, is that uh, director of photography or a cinematographer uh, kind of comes down on one side of a line, either more technical or more, more artist, more artist or plumber. Uh, I know you're a very technical guy, but your work is also beautiful. So uh, where would you personally draw the line for you? How, what, what percentage would you say you're plumber versus artist? I'm, I'm actually not a very technical guy. The, the one, you know, once I, once I learned the real basics of photochemical um, end of photography and how lenses and everything work, it kind of stopped there at this point. Um, I kind of quickly got to the point, especially with digital cameras, where I don't really give a hoot what goes on inside that box as long as I know that if I put A in the front, A will come out the back or B will come out the back, whatever it is that we're happening, trying to do. So, um, you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm much more inspired, I think, by fine art than any of the movies I've ever seen. If I, when I can make an image um that 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 looks as much as possible like like you know a david tenures or a rembrandt or you know name any number of other um dutch masters or, or mm. renaissance painters then that gives me the most thrilled um and 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 also i think those are the guys that wrote the book in on you know good composition and good lighting and interesting interesting lighting and, and use of mood and tone and um you know all the great cinematographers copied from that um, but I think it's something that, and I, and I know for sure that it's kind of been forgotten in a lot of the film schools and in the film history that you have here. And, and I think that's especially true in North America where, um, you know, all the operators I've ever worked with will talk about, will talk about, uh, you know, how, you know, the, the framing in classic movies or, and, and, and obviously you can't, you can't grow up watching endless amounts of network TV and not be influenced by the very sort of standard, rather boring um, traditions of you know how a close-ups framed for television and you know I've talked about this before but um, one of the things I love about working in Europe and love about working with British operators is the Europeans have all been you know right from a young age they've all been dragged through the National Gallery of, of, of uh, England and the Louvre and the Dorsey and and the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam 
And they've just soaked up all this amazing art, both lighting and, and composition, to the point where that's what influences how they build build their frames and 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 you build lighting you're absolutely right that's that's uh that's a wonderful lesson in composition and, and light you're all, all all those things and 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 i think that more than anything is one of the big reasons why game of thrones looks so amazing um because that's their that's their reference point it's not it's not magnum pi and it's you know it's or, or whatever the current hot movie is right now well i think you're being a little bit modest though too because i know you are technical you were one of our very first customers for the, the hot rod <laughs> pl mount all those years ago and uh I've, I've heard you talk about things in a in a pretty technical way and you do a lot of stuff with visual effects i mean all i mean i remember the tv shows millennium and all kinds of stuff that you that you did which were you know, vfx intensive television and and features so so i know that and i know that you've got some and we're not a technical podcast we don't talk tech but at the same time i think you're you're modest i think you, you know a lot about this well i don't know I, mean, I don't i don't think it comes from modesty maybe maybe it's um how much i enjoy the various aspects of it and maybe i don't think about the technical side so much because mm. when you see a new tool like 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 the, the the mount for the lumix that you guys made that i that i jumped on right away at the time i was doing a uh i was doing a uh, one of you know it was one of the early digital shows we were shooting on d Airy d21 initially and we actually switched when the alexa came out halfway through the season which was unheard of wow. and, and very exciting but it was a a big action-oriented show called Human Target, and um, we were not allowed under any circumstances to shoot film because of the SAG rules. So I was looking for what I needed was a digital IMO, and that's and you know and I and you know I read up the Lumix and the stuff you guys were doing with your with your with your mounts and your rigs was the perfect solution for us. Oh well, you're very kind, and I was really happy that you guys uh, used it on the show. No, okay, but but Robert, we're we're not talking about me. We're talking we're talking about you. So uh, I, and I definitely want to get to Game of Thrones. I think that uh, that that might be where people know you from most, just because it is such a monster show. But you're also doing Ray Donovan. We're, I didn't even mention we're on the set of The Affair right now. Uh, you, you you're doing a lot of stuff. Is there? I mean, you are busy. You are you are a working guy. Your your phone does not seem like it stops ringing. I, I've been very fortunate, and 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 I missed season six of Game of Thrones because Westworld asked me to to come on season one, and it was an opportunity to actually spend a, a solid year at home and sleep in my own bed. That's a but great thing. Apart, yeah. apart from that, literally, th this kind of. Um, synchronicity doesn't happen very often in your career, and I'm very fortunate that's happened at this point in my career because I've been, I've been, I mean, I love shooting Ray Donovan, I love shooting Westworld, and I love shooting Game of Thrones, and their schedules, at least until recently, meshed perfectly. So literally for five years, I went from Game of Thrones to Ray Donovan to Game of Thrones to Ray Donovan to Game, and so on, literally with a weekend off. And I mean, I'm wrapping. This is my last day on on the affair, and tomorrow I'm getting on a plane to go to New York to start prepping Ray Donovan. And would a break be nice? Yes, but on the other hand, you can't turn up a chance to get to express yourself on shows this good. And that, I have to imagine, has got to be part of the fun of the job, is that you're getting to work at a, at a high level, you're getting to, to play with the toys, you're getting to craft the look of shows, you're getting to to do all the things that a cinematographer gets to do. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's wonderful that you're also getting variety. A lot of people get pigeonholed or get stuck on one show and get one thing and then uh, maybe have a really hard time switching. You've got very different looks going on between all these things. Yeah, yes and no. I, I mean, uh, but really, um, I think the reason why I love all three of those shows and, and especially, you know, Ray and, 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 and Game of Thrones was that, you know, on one hand you've got medieval noir and on the other hand you've got, you know, LA noir and soon to become hopefully New York noir when the show ships there this season. 
um, we're going to try and revamp the look a little bit. But I think, you know, that, that certainly story-wise and tonally, that's where it's going to go. And I think, I don't think any, I don't think anybody becomes a cinematographer so they can shoot sitcoms or police procedurals. I mean, nobody does that. I mean, a lot of us end up doing it. Certainly, I've done my share of both those things. But in terms of job satisfaction, going home at the end of the day, feeling like, yeah, we did some nice stuff today. You know, you get to stretch your wings artistically a little more on the on the dark side than you ever do on the bright side. I I heard a um, I heard a quote. I don't know if it was it was applied to you, but it was many many years ago. It was during uh, when Millennium was going on that I think that someone said that you are responsible for the lack of lighting on that show. That the show was <laughs> was was such a you know a moody noir type I, of thing. So. I got credit for the, how how incredibly moody that show was, and it was really. I mean. It a lot of you know hardly any you know it, it was it was twenty years ago so a lot of people have completely forgotten it or never heard of it but it was way ahead of its time and its day. I did get credit for how dark the show was, but the real credit belongs to Chris Carter, who was a very powerful showrunner, probably the most powerful showrunner, seeing that he he ran X Files, which was you know the Game of Thrones of its day. It was a massive international hit, and Chris had a lot of clout. And normally the network would have come to me and said, because they, you know, they, they hate dark stuff for whatever reason, they're afraid mm. people are gonna change the channel. Um, and, and, and maybe there's a reason for that that was explained to me, I'll talk about it in a minute. With, um, Chris went to the network and said, no, this is what I want it to look like. And I always had a, a, you know, really liked working with him because I had that kind of support, but that doesn't happen all the time. It's only happened now, now again, now 20 years later, and I, I don't know how many hundred episodes of television under my belt. Um, and I'm, you know, I've got enough gray hair to, to when, 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 you, when you say something ought to look a certain way, nobody argues with you. Whereas when I tried to do it when I was like, you know, you know I, I think I shot my first union TV series when I was 32. Um, Nobody, nobody, nobody put too much weight in my opinions back then. It was like, no, we want you to do it this way. Well, I, I think that brings up a, a wonderful opportunity to tell me, uh, you know, to tell tell our listeners a little bit about the dues paying because I mean, every cinematographer I know has got some, you know, they got some stuff that uh, you know maybe they're not the most proud of, or maybe it was just it was a real grind of trying to get it out. You're working on a grand scale now, but it probably wasn't always that way. Oh You're, my God! I mean, look, when I started out, I, I I started I had to start. What I did was I started a little production company because it was. Easy easier for me to go and talk someone into letting me make them uh, a commercial for their chain of uh, crummy local pizzerias or you know an industrial training film for their uh, employees or whatever than it was to get someone to hire me to actually shoot something so that way I could shoot I could hire myself and I think that that really really heavily and has per- permanently informed the way I work in a lot of ways which is I mean, I have no idea because I've never spent much time on any other DP set. I'm pretty much self-taught, but everybody tells me that I'm pretty fast. And I think if I am, it's because I was working for myself and I had to be very frugal and I had to be very efficient. But at the same time, I had the quality had to be good enough that we were going to get another job because nobody cares how fast you did it. I tried to become fast and I tried to become good and eventually, and I basically starved from, I started that company and you know, I was like 20 something right out of college. You know, it wasn't until I got into the union and um, in my early thirties that I actually started to make a, a living wage. And then things really improved very, very quickly after that. I know Westworld's coming back, uh, but I don't know if, did you come back? I wasn't involved in season two. It, it overlapped quite substantially with Ray Donovan, and I'm really committed to Ray. And, and in fact, this season I'm going back as both a director and a producer. 
as well as a cinematographer on it. And I'm going to, um, it, it, it's, it's going to be really fun. I'm really looking forward to it. So that's sort of been my first, my, my first priority for a while now. Well, let's talk a little bit about Ray. It's a real hit for Showtime, I know. I have a lot of friends who are really big fans of the show. Tell me about uh, working on Ray Donovan, a little bit about um, your approach. And I'm sure that there's some conversations with, uh, I, I assume you have different directors who come in for different episodes, uh, and you're carrying that same look through. But uh, what's it like working with a rotating, a rotating cast of directors all the time? Yeah, you know, the episodic thing with, with directors, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, you like some a lot more than others. Um, I like the more experienced ones more than the less experienced ones as a rule because they seem to appreciate what, what everybody else has to do to get their, you know, get what they're after and, and everybody else has their needs as well. I think I'm probably up to about 350 or 400 episodic directors I've worked with now. I won't name names, but I mean, about you know a couple of dozen of them are, are ought to be canonized and and about two thirds of them shouldn't even be in the DGA. I don't. That's maybe a bit harsh, but it's, it's shocking who can actually become one. I'm lucky now because I've been working in in premium television now for quote exclusively for several years. So it's a long time since I've worked with anybody that I would categorize as a hack in any way. Um, you'll find a lot more of that in, in network television, unfortunately, but I think continually the bar is rising too. So that's an interesting aspect. One of the things that I, that I mostly love about working on Ray Donovan is that nobody tells me what it should look like. I don't, our showrunner, Dave Hollander is lovely. And he basically, the standing order is, um, however Rob thinks it should look is how it should look. And that's the end of it. I mean, he's very good delegating that way and, and, and which suits my way of working because the longer I've done this, the more I have been able to delegate to my crew as well and not micromanage. It runs in in the face of any kind of good morale or anything else. So I'll try and let everybody contribute as much as possible. Then I step back and, you know, and keep a very light hand on the wheel if I can. Just, you know, you just always have to be ready to yank the car back on the road, but then you then you let go again. And obviously on Game of Thrones, you're under the pressure because there have been so many DPs on it. Only on a typical season, there would be five DPs, each doing two episodes. And we're all required to you know, not go too far off the reservation in terms of how a, a, a well-established set looks. So you, know, you have to be very careful as far as that's concerned. Hey, I, w- I wanted to ask you about Game of Thrones. It, it seems to me that uh, there is almost a, a cast of cinematographers. It seems like it must be a very, uh, I mean, it's a very grand show, and you have multiple units, I'm guessing, working all, all the time in multiple cities and around Europe. Uh, is that is that pretty much the, the situation? Yeah, they have a unique deal there. They have two complete shooting crews. There's never any second unit or splinter unit, as we know it. There are two complete shooting unit crews. Their paths never cross. I mean, sometimes they're both in the same studio. Um, in different stages, but often they'll be thousands of miles or, or tens of miles apart. And the director DP AD teams hop between the two of them. Um, so, you know, that's a little bit, the first time I did it, it was, it was really brutal for me because I was so used to working with a really, uh, you know, my crew. And now I was working with the producer's crew, basically. And it takes a while to get into the rhythm with everybody. Pretty scary, daunting experience. The first time you do that show, everybody will tell you, every DP will tell you the same thing. It's really tough because you, you, you don't know the crews. They've got their way of doing things. You, you're not in the groove with them. And, and also, you'll get two or three days with one unit, and then you might, not, you might be prepping for four or five while other guys shoot 
and then you'll work with another unit for three or four days and then back and forth so until that end of the first season when i started to really get to know the guys well and we got a nice rapport it was really really tough and and you know you're only as good as your crew i I think that's really true it also must be pretty daunting to show up and now you have triple the number of names you have to remember for everybody it's like uh, and and you're you have to then you know place yourself like oh i stepped over to this other set that person's not here they're over on the other one so it's absolutely brutal i mean the first time it took me two years to learn most of the crew's name and as it is i mean that crew list if you went right through it including huge practice it's there's a thousand people on that list and i'm not exaggerating no it's not i've watched the credits i mean i always watch the credits but that's like that's a it's a it's an army you've got it you've got an army working it literally is an army and then and you know and a lot of the ones whose names don't end up on it like the the spoils of war episode the big battle scene that we did um in spain this year you know the you know we had a massive uk crew but then they brought in hundreds of local spanish technicians as well Well, uh, that's a spectacular hour of television. Spoils of War. That's the the loot train, loot train train attack. Yes. Yeah, Uh, yeah, that that, uh, they got got written up all over the uh, got written up all over the interwebs as being uh, like one of the most spectacular hours of television that you could you could watch. (laughs) You know, we tried to. They won't tell us what the budget was, but I'm pretty sure it was the biggest budget hour of television ever made. It it wouldn't surprise me. It's great. You've got a lot of projects going on, and. and we've already talked about how the look of some of these shows, you know, are actually they're they're even though they're completely different worlds, they do have some similarities and noir and the contrast and different things happening. Tell me about what aren't we seeing? I mean, there's an awful lot of like nuance that goes into this work. There's a lot of uh, little cheats and things. What are we not seeing out there that, that well, really that gets you excited about when you're working? It's like, ooh, I, I achieved something. You know what? I, I, I find that like I can't. Um I'm really, I, I find what I enjoy and, and I think I'm probably pretty good at is just is rolling with whatever you're presented with when you get to location. Now, obviously, a thing like Game of Thrones, we have a lot of prep time and you really, really have to have your ducks in a row because believe it or not, the days are way too short. You only have 10 hour shooting days and you have to do a massive amount with them and it's a big machine and and you better be ready to go when you when you hit the floor and, and you know you really have to have a plan in fact as much as possible we have to try to have the lights like the sets 80 percent pre-lit mm-hmm. when we walk in or 90 percent or 100 percent pre-lit which is fine but you know what i enjoy even more is i walk i, I sometimes you know we lost the location we've got to go this location i haven't seen it before here's the blocking um and and making the best of it it sounds like an indie film you just described there almost except that you well know, it's a it's an it's an army and you, yeah, you're but, trying to roll with but, it. well you yeah. know what it's easy to do if you've got an amazing crew and three truckloads full of equipment because you can sort of solve any problem and and you know but increasingly the, the longer i've done this this the the more simple i try to keep everything and i think any of my guys will tell you like we're, we're, we're doing a day interior scene in this in this beautiful old room right now we had one light inside which just because I had some, I had some dark skin against some light skin in order to balance them nicely. Um, we had to bring something inside, but I mean, I, I would have been happiest and I'm always happiest with a day interior when there's not a single light inside the room, because why would there be? I mean, it feels better. It feels more natural and organic if it's all coming from outside as it would be normally. Somebody um, described the way I work as like Napoleon's battle plan, which apparently, I don't know if you've heard this, but Somebody once asked Napoleon when he was he was like heading towards a major decisive or a major important battle, a critical battle, what his battle plan was. And he said, um, the plan is first we'll go there and then we'll see what happens. And 
you know, it's not as cavalier as it sounds because obviously you have your, you, you know, you have your artillery and your infantry and your, you know, what have you all ready to go so you can adapt. I've seen cameramen on Game of Thrones who thought they really had it all figured out, but then a curve gets thrown at you and you're screwed because it, it, it you know, dealing with it is going to cost too much time, might cost an extra day, um, which is, which is, you know, the cardinal sin on that show. It sounds to me like what you're saying is that uh, the number one thing that we're not seeing is the improvising. There's like an Im- improvisational uh, error correction or fixing that's kind of happening on the fly all the time. Yeah, so, just talking about it with you now, I, I listen to a lot of jazz when I, and um, maybe maybe this is the photographic equivalent of, uh, of playing in a jazz band as opposed to an orchestra. This has been a really fantastic conversation. I really, really have learned a lot about your process and really enjoyed hearing about Game of Thrones and Westworld and Ray Donovan and now the affair too. And, uh, I guess anything else you'd like to, you'd like to share anything else that's not that I haven't asked you about so far that you'd like to, to throw uh, out, you know, just, um, name whatever i mean um, macgyver you know i'm sure i talk about macgyver <laughs> <laughs> macgyver i, I love Mac- going deep on imdb and i yeah, saw you did some Mac- episodes macgyver, MacGyver was so. my first uh, big network show and of course it was like it was like one of the biggest shows on television in its day it definitely was and um i i did i did about i don't know umpteen episodes as second unit which which actually was a big deal on that show it comprised usually about 15 to 20 minutes of each episode because it was absolutely anything that didn't have macgyver in it we shot and we even did sometimes stuff that did have macgyver in it and then so i did that for a long time and um that that was on the heels of a of a iconic canadian series that had run sort of a uh, an adventure comedy adventure you know family entertainment show called the beachcombers that ran on cbc's for cbc for 19 years and wow. and it was a great training place i mean i can't believe they hired me the guy Derek gardner who hired me the executive at cbc just i mean i was 29 or 30 and he hired me to shoot the most famous show in canada um I mean that was just a massive break and a massive boost in your in your in your you know confidence that somebody would do that and it meant well you know maybe I can go and you know so I I I accepted the job to go and do second unit on what was then the biggest you know American network show at the time and and that you know of course having having got that under your belt that opened the door for a whole bunch of other stuff much as you know all the guys who've ever worked on Game of Thrones are going to have some and already have had some pretty big feature doors open for them i i have to imagine yeah that's true i mean with a show like that and i know we're heading into what i think is the final season but uh i'm not going to ask you to tell anything about it that's not what our our listeners i'm not working on the final season so i can't i can't tell you a single thing in fact i'm really looking forward to it they're shooting it now they're they're over there for like eight months wow which yeah i mean six months is i mean the last my last six month there just about was the end of my marriage so um you know i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna gonna fold them while i'm ahead um as far as that's concerned Uh, well well well, here's to working locally and here's to you know uh being able to 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 maintain good interpersonal relations with your family yeah that's a good thing well um as i see crew members starting to sort of trickle back towards the set here. I know we have a limited amount of time. Where can people find you? Do you exist on the interwebs or Twitter or Instagram? Or you know, I had things? a I had a pretty good website for a long time that my brother managed to, who did that kind of stuff, but he stopped doing it. And um, I don't think it's been updated for like five or six years. So I, I but, and um, I do have a Tumblr with Ooh, Tumblr. All right. I do have a Tumblr with frame grabs of, you know, a wide variety of my stuff. Um, I forget what it's called. <laughs> You might try searching my name. Um, 
might be RBM ASC. I can't remember to tell you the truth. Um, I'll, I'll look but, it up and I'll put it you know, in the show so, notes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. If you, if you could find it, find out what it is for me, I'd really appreciate it. Cause it's a while since I updated it. <laughs> you, you know, you're not the only one. We actually have many people on here who go like, yeah, I've got a reel online. It's about three years out of date, but <laughs> or or longer. Oh so. my God. I haven't done a thing. You know, thank God I haven't had to do a reel for, um, seven or eight years now but um yeah anything that's online is pretty out of date i mean there's a bit of stuff there's a nice variety of stuff some older stuff people might not have seen on that is actually accessible on imdb pro but um uh and vimeo i think i've got some stuff up on vimeo too that's great i'll, I'll find some links and and they'll be added on the the show page at camnoir.com Robert, thank you very much for being on the show. Crew members are coming back onto the set right now. It looks like uh, you know work's about to start. Th- thanks so much for the time. Oh, my pleasure. So that was Robert McLaughlin's interview. Thank you so much. And uh, Ilya, awesome job. If 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 uh, if I do say so, uh, amazing job doing the interview. Oh, and go on. You need go to, on. You need to do more. You need to do lots more. <laughs> oh, interviews. guess guess what. It's happening. It is happening in the next episode. That's right. Next episode uh, is from the person whose war story we're about to hear right now, Claudia Rashka. And and you interviewed her at NAB, correct? I did. We had kind of a cool experience inside the Tokina booth. They had a setup for live podcasting. They were very gracious to allow us to come and do a podcast there. Claudia came and sat down and we talked all about her career and life, which is really interesting. And, uh, you know, she's, she's shot a ton of stuff. She's shot, uh, you know, narratives type of stuff. She's been in the, she came up traditionally through the camera department, but now she's most known for her documentary work of which several of the documentaries, at least uh, I know a couple have been nominated for Academy Awards. And, uh, yeah, she's doing amazing work, including most recently, probably the thing that most people would know for from her is RBG, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary, which has got a lot of buzz. And so uh, here it is, uh, Claudia Rushke's War Story. And now, War Stories. Uh, on the film uh, A Sea Change about ocean acidification, I was working with Barbara Ettinger as a director, and uh, she was very concerned when I said it. I said to her, let us uh, take a boat out and go near the glaciers, because this is about receding glaciers, we should really be there and, and kind of film the carving of the glacier. And she's like, are you out of your mind? Uh, what if the camera falls into the water? And so anyway, but she was interested, and we definitely wanted to go there, so I took a... Uh, I took the small camera out there and in order to go near the glacier we had not a solid boat but one would say it was a rowboat with a motor and we had these scientists that were of course you know uh, completely feeling secure about where they would go but they weren't really quite equipped to know and navigate um, the waters because when you are near a glacier that's carving you have these ice blocks that are floating by but you are only seeing about two percent of them and because they're still in the process of floating away from the glacier they at any time could break and jump out of the water and create a tsunami you toward your boat and you can flip over in the water now mind you the water is freezing cold you will only survive in it without any protection for about 30 seconds so we had already put on these survival suits which are huge puffy 
orange things, which are very difficult to maneuver around. And so, plus, there was a certain amount of spray coming from the water that kept flipping onto the lens. And uh, we had to split up in two boats. So I had the director and uh, some scientists in a different boat. And I was with one scientist who was also a little bit more willing to risk things for good angles. And all of a sudden, the director calls, like, look over there, the glacier is carving. But when a glacier is carving off, you don't hear it. You first see it. And then a bit later, you hear it. So you can't be warned. And it is like that moment of it happened. I saw it. I grabbed it with the camera. And then five seconds later, or it seemed like a long time, this humongous thundering sound happened. Can you hear the ice cracking over here? Oh, yeah. Sounds like Imagine a 10-story tall building falling into the water, sinking down and then with this huge eruption, jumping back up because of the impact. It just has this incredible propulsion to just explode back out of the water and that causes this big tidal wave that then rushes towards you and if you're in a tiny boat god help you and at that moment it shook me so much and i was standing in this nutshell and then the wave was coming thereafter that it was this epiphany of you know we feel so invincible and so immortal and take these risks without really thinking them through and sometimes we really pay for it and uh, I did not fall into the water the scientists didn't fall into the water but we were very close and now short ends so that was Claudia Rashke's war story uh, tune in to our next episode and you will hear her full interview recorded at the Tokina booth thanks Tokina <laughs> they're they are not a sponsor but they're very cool and I own two of their lenses and I use them all the damn time and no one paid me to say that <laughs> They are pretty great. But hey, you know what? Maybe if we, you know, just in the spirit of goodwill, we put it out there. We say how much we like Tokina and it was nice of them to have us in their booth. Maybe they will sponsor us. You know, I mean, they could or they couldn't. But they're 11 to 16 uh, Zoom. uh, They have a new one, too. Actually, Oh, do they? They have have an 11 to 20. Oh, sweet. So it's basically 11 to 16, but a little longer. Plus four. Exactly. It's a great (laughs) lens. Hey, uh, Ben, what is your short end this week? So my short end, uh, as I said in the last episode, I've been cheating on our podcast with another podcast, and I don't want to yet say what the title is, because you never know, that might change, and a lot of things might change about it. You'd be embarrassed. <laughs> if I, if the title changed? That's right, because you would say this title, and then oh, the title oh, yeah, would change, yeah. then you'd be like, oh man, you remember that thing I told you to go search in iTunes? You can't find it. Yeah, well, and also, I don't know when they're going to release it, so I'll probably be pounding it a lot harder once it's uh, getting closer to its release date. Um, but, uh, I, I do want to say that it was like a very different, it, 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 it almost has no place on the cinematography podcast. However, it was just like making a movie, but it was like making a movie in fast forward the whole way. 
So uh, we developed it like it was a TV series. Uh, we, we It's 10 episodes. Each episode is 15 to 30 minutes long. But I mean, it can be any length because it's a podcast. As you and I have proven, a podcast can be friggin' two hours long. As many people have proven before us, including Mark Marin and, and whatnot. Like <laughs> lots of all the big, all the, all the hardcore history, all the, oh Jesus. I, I'm, I think I'm still working on the first episode of hardcore history. And, and I, yeah, it's, that's a long one. So, uh, but these are going to be about between 15 and 30 minutes. We broke it like a TV series. Uh, we wrote the, we wrote the scripts, each script we wrote, as I said in last episode, we wrote it, uh, using fade in software. Um, the scripts tended to be between like 17 and 22 pages long. And then we cast it traditionally with, with a casting director, Leah Mangum, who I think, you know, very well, mm-hmm. uh, she's cast a lot of the projects that I've, uh, worked on over the years. And, uh, we saw a gazillion people for it and, uh, got, I think a pretty awesome cast. And then, we recorded it all at a place called Iceman Studios, which is in Burbank, and like 183 pages of script, which is what what it ultimately was. We recorded in five days, so that meant that like our our shortest our, our lowest page count day was still like 35 pages. And you know, compare this. Most most people who are listening to us will know this, but like you know, a movie. Uh, like a big movie, you might only shoot like two or three pages a day. Something that's lower budget, you, you may shoot like six, eight pages a day. TV series, probably in that zone, maybe some days as much as 10 pages if you're having an insane day. And then like something that just shoots a huge volume would be like a soap opera would probably shoot like 20 to 30 pages a day. We were recording 45 pages some days to get to get through this. This is why radio is faster to produce. Than anything, oh, yeah. anything visual, because not only is there no light, there's no camera, there's there's none of all that. No makeup, stuff. no props, no sets, <laughs> no, nothing you can look at. Actors can be sweaty and gross and you can move on. But here was the real challenge, actually. You know, so we have this 183 page script that Bob and I wrote. So, like, I know every page of it. We've gone through it all many, many times. Ooh, tell me about page 37. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's uh, the, it's the 37th page. Um, uh, uh, no, but like what would happen would be like, you know, like, say we finish recording like scene 45. Now mm-hmm. it's like, OK, next up is scene 78. And you just flip it and you go right into it. Like you, the, there's no delay. There's, there's no hesitation. And like in a movie set, you'd have like, you know, be like, oh, that's the circle take. OK, so now we're moving on to, you know, whatever. And you have like five, ten, sometimes 30 minutes, sometimes an hour to get your head around the next thing. No, you got seconds. Now. This it's like literally the the owners of, of Iceman who were also running the thing. So uh, Evan or Mike would come in and move the boom, mic. That would be it. We might block the scene. And we were doing like kind of traditional theater type scene work so that everything sounded very very natural and and so sometimes we would block a scene a lot of times we wouldn't and uh, interestingly enough like this uh, every episode of our podcast has been recorded on the zoom h4n uh, in addition to all the high-tech mics actually iceman provided an h4n that was the device that this character was using to record on which we would always figure out where it went in the room or what he was doing with it in a given scene and so it sort of became a character and it that all being said, it was just like, boom, boom, boom. You, you, you had to have your head almost random access wrapped around the whole project. But I think this is a huge, if, if, even if we fall on our faces, I feel like the potential to tell a movie kind of story or just a more, a more complex story, uh, using the podcast medium is a, it's a very exciting prospect. Like it was a lot of fun to do. And for actors loved it because they would come in and they'd record all their stuff in, you know, an hour or two, sometimes less. 
Um, and you know, we got some really accomplished actors to come in and, and, and do this thing. They, they still got paid for the day though. Well, the, SAG has a, a podcast rate actually, oh, wow. and it's okay. done in four hour session increments. So like people who were there for a day, were actually getting two session rates and it's actually not terrible money. Huh. Oddly, the director's guild has no podcast, uh, category at all. <laughs> Cause I think they assume that all podcasts are like what we're doing here. But this other podcast that I did, there was literally no difference in the way that it was written with the way you would write a movie other than just the structure of a podcast is different. And there was and the directing I was doing was as much directing. It was more directing than some of the DGA work I've done in the past. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it's it sounds like an amazing experience. So I guess your your short end this week is, hey, uh, making a fiction narrative podcast is exactly like doing anything visual, except just taking away all the visuals it, it, and thinking about how to how to create the as my father would say, because he's an old radio man, like how to create the theater of the mind using sound effects. And in our case, it was like uh, keeping in mind that it would, anything you're hearing is something that the main character is in a room with like a Zoom H4N or in some cases, you know, he had his phone or some kind of microphone or some kind of app recording on his phone like the, figuring out where all these artifacts came from and, and kind of creating a story kind of built around them. Sounds cool. Yeah. Well, hopefully uh, the next time I uh, see you after this, we might be done with all 10 episodes because we're supposed to have them all edited by the end of August. We'll see how that goes. Something tells me I may never see you again. It's a good, good chance. Okay. So, hey, uh, I've got a weird short end this week. The, um, my short end is actually something... I've always wanted to do and I've never been able to do and I just found out that I'm doing it so hey without uh, without mincing any more words about this I'm gonna get to go to a premiere I'm gonna get to go to a premiere party at the Arclight for Ozark season two I just found out about this Uh, my wife got an invite and usually when these sort of things come through uh, we've got kids we never get to go but we got a sitter and uh, I love Ozark, and if you did not, I'm actually going back and I'm rewatching it now. It's a great it's, show. It is fantastic, and it actually ties in a little bit to what I talked about in my short end in the last episode, shot in the Univision two to one format, which is uh, gorgeous. And now I'm going to go to go see that experience, get to go see that two to one on a big screen at the Cinerama Dome or at the ArcLight. So uh, I've driven by there. My office used to be right near there, and I'd always see like these premieres and these things, oh, yeah. and people walking in on the red carpet. And stuff. That's where we did the premiere for Victor. Crowley, which I spoke oh, about right. on here. Oh God, I, totally unrelated to nothing. Apropos of nothing, but I saw someone else online talking about like the their favorite horror films this year or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And Victor Crowley was at the top of their list. People so. love that movie. So yeah. Anyway, so uh, I'm finally going to get to you know here, here's a little bucket list check mark. I get to go go see something, and it's for something I really really like. So that's uh, and there's supposed to be even an after party. So I'm like I'm I'm all jazzed about going to see uh, you know the two to one aspect ratio on the big screen on something I really like and getting to go hobnob with these people. Because what, so. what, I've gone to a few, because uh, one of the benefits of living in LA is you can figure out ways to go to screenings of TV shows in giant movie theaters. Yeah. Like I remember uh, season three, The it wasn't really a premiere, but it was like they showed the first episode of season three of Hannibal at uh, LACMA. Hmm. And it was like on the big screen in a giant awesome. theater. Yeah. And it's like you go there and one of the, it's one of the bummers of it is you watch and you go like these TV shows look as good as anything you're seeing on, on movie screens. They look amazing. And, uh, you know, a show like Ozark, you know, is, it's a very cinematic show with outrageously strong visuals and great acting and amazing writing and all the things you want in a movie. 
And also, you know, obviously it's, you know, 10 hours uh, per season as opposed to, you know, and two hours for a movie or whatever. But like I would I would see the movie version of that. Like I it, it's exciting to it's exciting to see stuff like that. I, I went to because I had worked on a promotional campaign for the first season of True Blood. They had a premiere for the first episode of True Blood at the Arclight. And I don't know if you're going to it's it's the same thing. But like they even had the party like on the roof of the parking structure of the Arclight, which sounds like, you know, a horrible thing. But actually, it's got an amazing view of Hollywood. And, you know, when they deck it out, it's gorgeous up there. Uh, yes, I, I've parked up there before and I've also shot up there before. Uh, and I'll say we didn't have permission. And so they don't like people hanging out up there. So the fact that they rented out that whole top floor, oh, yeah. thing, that, that's awesome. No, this party is actually across the street somewhere. There's somewhere down the down the street that the, the, the after party is but anyway uh, but regardless uh, I'm, I'm super jazzed about it and I can't imagine something better uh, you know I, I think Jason Bateman and Laura Linney are of course fantastic but the whole supporting cast every everyone else in that thing is, is I think phenomenal I, I mean nothing against Jason Bateman because he's awesome as well I think Laura Linney is one of the one of the least appreciated amazing actors living today she does I've never seen her do a bad job she, she's so good in everything she does and it was exciting to watch her in season one of that show yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it in fact actually I would say that if there was a show like Ozark that they said hey we're going to take 10 hours and we're going to put it in the theater and there was sort of like a movie pass sort of thing I, I would go I would go back and I would watch it in a, I would watch it on a big screen that is the type of television that is easily big screen that's e- easily big screen content. I, I've often wondered why they don't do that like why don't they like for eight, non-HBO subscribers have Game of Thrones if it, I mean it's only whatever 8 to 10 episodes a, a year say like every Sunday night come here you know like for 60 bucks you can see all of them I would totally do that those shows would look great on the big screen mark my words I think that will happen I think that that is actually a future that we are heading towards there hasn't been someone who's stepped up to do it there hasn't been a theater that says hey this is there is some alternative content that is happening but that I think would be uh, would be huge and be a wonderful tie-in for the streaming networks because you know maybe you can't go Maybe you can't go see episodes, all 10 episodes in a the theater, but maybe you can see like eight of them and still totally worth it for 60 bucks. I'd do that. I mean, serious. I mean, even if it was just the last episode of a show like Game oh, of absolutely. Thrones. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the the big finale is on a big screen. I would go do that, of course. So somebody ripped that idea off if you haven't yeah. already thought about yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, someone out there is, you know, hopefully he's noodling that through right now. So we're, we can look forward to the reboot of uh, Family Matters on the big screen <laughs> when, it, when that happens. Or, or Elf. <laughs> so, hey, Ben, where can people find you? You can find me online at www. That, that's the World Wide Web for those of you who are new. You it's don't say. The Information Superhighway. www.benrockonline.com. I uh, hear it's a series of tubes. <laughs> the, my website and also the internet uh, series of tubes um, uh, one day I hope to get benrock.com but it, it hasn't happened yet it, it used to be a boat company true story wow where they made like boat engines and yeah. then they were bought by another company and I've asked them yearly if I could have benrock if I can buy benrock.com from them and they won't let me buy it from them no. even though right now there's nothing on it there's probably six people a year who are being redirected to them uh, well, no, there's nothing on it now. For a while, I was like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Okay, if you sell one boat motor a, a year, then there's no amount of money I can give you that's going to be m- worth more than that. But right now, there's literally nothing there. Just benrock.com sitting fallow, and but they own it. And, and they won't let me have it so hopefully one day uh, they'll uh, they'll 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 see the light and they'll be like hey he's not a competing boat company we can look him up there he is until uh, that time you're just gonna imagine a bunch of like big wigs sitting around a sitting around a uh, 
off-board motor uh, <laughs> a coffee table of some sort, smoking big cigars, going, in your face, Ben Rock. They, they've actually always been very nice when they said, uh, no, we're not going to sell it to you, but they've always been very cordial about it. Anyway, uh, you can also find me on Twitter, at Neptune Salad. I'm also on the Instagrams and the Facebooks, and you know you can find me if you look even a little a little bit. You'll find me, no problem. You can find me, too. I'm pretty much the only Ilya Friedman out there, and uh, HotRodCameras.com That's a is, boast. You yeah. sure there's not another Ilya Friedman in the whole world? There is one. There is one, but he spells it with one L, and I've got two L's in mine, so you know we, we, so. we, we became friends on LinkedIn, actually. Which oh, is that's pretty, cool. Which is pretty funny. So, so it's just the two of us. So it's, yeah, it's either like, uh, you know, attorney in Russia, or Ilya Friedman like you know camera guy so, nice yeah, yeah that makes sense so anyway sorry you're you are at <laughs> hotrodcameras.com the sponsor of the show hot rod cameras you've heard of us yes, yes once, once or twice and then so, also and then of course you can find us on the instagrams and of course the camnoir.com which is leading to. our official website where you know we're actually going to be adding some extra stuff there soon too which will be fun Yay, fun. I like fun things. We'd like to thank Ben Katz for doing an amazing job uh, with all the editing on all the posts. Thanks, Mr. Katz. As always, we want to thank Kays Alatrakshi for every scrap of music that you've heard in this. Please go to www.musicbykays.com. Why? He doesn't listen to us. He's never going to know. I want somebody to go there and I want someone to send him an inquiry and say, I heard your work on the Cinematography Podcast and it's awesome. You don't have to even offer him a job. Just say, hey, I like your work, and it'll make his day, and he'll feel good about having uh, helped us all these long years. You know, I bet if we actually just ask people to go troll him, they might do that. I mean, totally troll him. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I wonder if I wonder if we can get Charles Pappert to troll him. I mean, Ooh. it's been like two episodes since we mentioned him. Yeah, we haven't heard from Charles in, in like yeah. Yeah, a couple of days. Maybe. Anyway, <laughs> um, and then as always, too, we wanted to thank Alana Cody for her awesome producing and uh, helping us line up all these interviews and uh, keeping the fire lit under my butt to keep uh, to keep churning these out and uh, getting us uh, st- staying on. Uh, Ben Katz and uh, all, all, uh, all the whole crew. That's the crew. You've now, you now you know all of us. You know all four of us. All yeah. right, fantastic. Hey, uh, looking forward to our next episode with uh, Claudia Rashke. See you then. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.